I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore innovative thinking, American history, and thought leadership through interviews, commentary, and conversation with top authors. My most recent interview in front of a live audience in Dallas was last week with Dayton Duncan, co-author of Country Music and Illustrated History, with a foreword by Ken Burns, and that's the companion coffee table book to Ken Burns' newest documentary, Country Music, which debuts on PBS Sunday, September 15. Also, Julie Dunphy, who along with Dayton Duncan and Ken Burns is a co-producer of the country music film, was able to join us for the interview. Enjoy. If I were to ask you what's your favorite Ken Burns, most of you would say the Civil War. And I'm here to tell you this country music is going to top the Civil War. Uh, it starts on September the 15th. Uh, Ken is in New York, but his two co-producers, Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy, are on a national tour, and we're in Dallas last night at McFarland for KERA. It'll be on PBS, as all of Ken's films are. And you watch these Ken Burns films, and you can't possibly have an appreciation for what it takes to put them together. This film has been eight years in the making. They did over a hundred live interviews. They reviewed more than a hundred thousand photos. They watched 600 hours of footage, listened to over 15,000 songs, and just in the editing part, as you can imagine, with all that to bring it down to 16 hours, it was two years in the editing studio. So what you're about to see on PBS is a masterwork by master workers, and we're so glad to have two of them here today. Please welcome Dayton Duncan and Julie Dunphy. And they have uh, worked on previous Ken Burns films, and, and Dayton is the author of this magnificent book that you got, which he wrote all the text, but this team chose the photos and, and, and how it's laid out. I read an advanced copy of the book. I want to tell you it's as good a book as you will ever read, but it, the, the photos just jump off the page. Pictures of a 13-year-old George Jones with a guitar around his neck, or uh, Hank Williams at age... 12 on a street corner begging for nickels with a guitar while he's singing. Those kinds of photos, wonderful childhood photos. So we're here, obviously, to talk about both the film and the book. So Dayton, since you wrote the book, let, let's, let's start with you. It's a narrative. It's not an encyclopedia. And it flows chronologically, although it flows mainly through the leading performers of the era, starting with when the commercial country music era began in the 1920s up through 1996, and we'll get into why they stopped it then. And so to develop these uh, important figures as to the ones who are still alive, obviously some of them are deceased, and many times it was a race against the clock. Uh, Chris Christopherson was on the verge of declining into dementia. Merle Haggard didn't have long to live, but they got them, and they're in the film. So, Dayton, out of all the interviews you did, which was the most surprising? Um, that's tough. I mean, the... Um, I, can I change that question a little bit? Which one was it's that? your show. Uh, it's your show. Well, I, I, not, not necessarily surprising, but rewarding and uh, unforgettable uh, was Merle. Um, you see how strongly he feels about his subject, and this shows the passion that went into this film. So take all the time you need, Dayton. My kids call me the waterworks, so <laughs> watch out. Um, you know, I met him um, early in the project, as we did with many people, go and introduce ourselves, say who we are, that we're working on this film on country music, and how much we would like to interview them at the appropriate time. And I met with Merle in, on his bus before a, a concert in New Hampshire where Julie and I and Ken all live. And, um, but I also took that opportunity uh, to say, 
Yeah, as we did with everybody. Okay, if you're making this film, uh, you know, what things do we need to really know? And uh, his eyes lit up a little bit, and he said, uh, you know who Emmett Miller is? And I said, I think I've heard his name. He goes, he's important. I said, yes, sir. And uh, he said, you do know who Jimmy Rogers is, don't you? I said, yes, I know who Jimmy Rogers is. This is good. He's very important. Maddox Brothers and Rose? I said, I don't know them. He goes, look them up. I said, yeah. He said, Bob Wills, you know about him? I said, yes. And anyway, so when we sat down to do the interview a couple of years later, uh, that's where we started the interview in those things that I knew that he felt was important because to him, the traditions of country music and the history of it was more interesting than talking about himself and his own life and uh, career. And so he appears in every single episode of our eight-episode, 16-hour series. In the early episodes, talking about Emmett Miller and Jimmy Rogers and Bob Wills and the Maddox Brothers and Rose and the art of songwriting. And finally, when we got into the interview to talk about him, I think he loosened up a little bit. And a number of people have uh, said what an unusually great interview it was with him. I think that uh, worked. And, um, it was just, he's one of my heroes, so. Um, surprising, uh, I, I'm, I was, the surprising thing was um, that I got to interview Merle Haggard. How's that for a surprise? <laughs> well, the great story of Merle Haggard was a, a person who really turned his life around. Uh, one of the most landmark concerts in the history of Johnny Cash was at San Quentin Prison, and Merle Haggard was a prisoner there and saw the concert. In fact, you might talk about it. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Johnny Cash is a great figure uh, in our book and our, in our film as well. Had a deep passion for the people who get looked down upon or left out, and that included prisoners, and he made a habit of going to prisons to give concerts, Indian reservations and other places like that. Um, Merle Haggard did turn 21 in prison, as the song says, on the tribe, though he wasn't doing life without parole. Um, and Cash was there, and, and he was sitting in the audience, and it was a bit of a turning point uh, for him. He was, a, he was a rebellious kid, and a rebellious young man, and initially a very rebellious prison at the time in Solomon uh, for it. But, Cash's uh, performance and other things made him change his mind a little bit. And as he says in, the, uh, in his interview, he came to the fork in the road and took it. He decided <laughs> he didn't want to keep digging a, a deeper hole for himself. Um, and then went on. And uh, just a month ago, we went to San Quentin and showed excerpts of our film there and got to meet a guy who knew Merle Haggard in San Quentin more than 50 years ago, and it's still there. So, uh, and, and Merle had taught him how to play the bass guitar. Um, and that was, you know, as we do these uh, events around the nation to promote our, our film, we're with BBS so they don't have any money for advertising. So the only way we can get the word out is to uh, travel a lot of miles, but um, that was one of the most special um, Screening events we had, and I'll cut it cut it off. I, I tend to talk too much. And the questions that the inmates then had all talked about two things. One is how inspiring Merle's story is to them, that you can, you know, straighten up and 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 succeed. And the other amazing thing is how much they all knew Ken's films because San Quentin, you know, they don't get cable TV there. Uh, but they do have an antenna for uh, a prison-wide television, and they do Ken's films backward and forward. They wanted to talk to him and to Julie and me about these other films we did in ways that were very surprising. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Now, Julie, many of the country music stars over the years have actually had very similar upbringings. Uh, most of them came from large, poor families, Many of them quit school early, long before high school graduation. They were influenced not only by the fiddles and the banjos, but also by gospel and, and black music. 
They struggled with infidelity and booze slash drugs, and they had careers with major peaks and valleys, and many of them died young. So you as a co-producer, you obviously want to establish a certain uniqueness to each of these stars. What was your approach to zero in so that each of them would stand out independently? You're absolutely right. One of the things that's so moving for me is the art of the seriousness that common, particularly in a specific era in country music, when we're talking about Dolly Parton or George Jones, people who were maybe children or born just after the Depression, children during the Depression, just afterward, the abject poverty they grew up with is really striking. You see it over and over again, whether they're born in the 1930s or the 1940s. And that desire to never get caught again, um, or the you know making a connection with another artist because they see the scars on their fingers from picking cotton, and that what I consider uh, very aspirational American drive to leave that poverty behind, to leave that life behind, knowing they had a talent, and that and, and seeing it as the story unfold with their life, um, how they got how they got out of the situation they were in. Um, it, it's interesting because one of the things, one of the themes that runs throughout the eight episodes is the connection from country fans to the country artists. And the title of the eighth episode is Don't Get Above a Raisin, which is a southern expression. You don't get too big for your bridges, don't forget where you came from, don't forget the values you grew up with. And what we found over and over again with these people who had these artists who had risen up out of um, really dire situations in, in some cases, is they never forgot where they came from, no matter how wealthy they became, no matter what the arc of their life was, and as you say, you know, sometimes it went up and down. They always maintained that connection to their fans. Mm -hmm. They never forgot where they came from. Mm -hmm. Now, the first two major figures in country music history, one was Jimmy Rogers, who Dayton mentioned, known as the father of country music. If you have your books handy, there's a wonderful photograph of him on page 59, so you can kind of visualize who we're going to be talking about. And then there's also the Carter family. June Carter Cash came out of it. Maybell Carter, her mother. Uh, but they epitomized the two opposite sides of country music, the hard partying Saturday night, and then the Sunday morning church-going uh, kind of rethinking what they did the night before. The, the Carters advertised themselves as having morally good music. I don't think Jimmy Rogers ever did that. So, Dayton, how did this disparity in, in the tone of the lives of these people, how did that essentially set the tone for country music for, for the many decades? Well, what it showed um, to me when I was doing my research is listening to Jimmy Rogers' records over and over and to the Carter family is what became a central point of our film, which is that people tend to stereotype and put in a silo what they think country music is. It's just this. And what we learned is that it's much broader than that. And that's clear from the very start of Jimmy Rogers. His, he, he was a water boy for uh, African-American road gangs uh, laying track in Mississippi and picked up the blues from them. And a lot of his songs are basically, you know, a blues structure, but he added this uh, yodel to it that he became famous for. And the origins of that was in the 1840s, an alpine yodeling troupe came through and toured America and set off this craze that, you know, then reverberated with other people picking it up. So he had the blues with the yodel, and uh, and he was a scamp and a scoundrel, you know. Uh, he's in the jailhouse now. That's one of his songs, you know. Uh, I shot poor Thelma just to see her drop and fall in Keeper, Texas. Uh, that that's kind of stuff wasn't in the Carter family songbook at, at, at all. And their music tended to come more from the Appalachian traditions that came over uh, from the British Isles, the old ballads and the, and, and the hymns. And so as one of the, the only historian that we interviewed for our film, we concentrated on, on the artists who also knew the history because they were, uh, they, they had a, a little different take. Not, they got the facts right, but they had a flavor. Mm -hmm. 
But as he points out, that, that right from the start, that's two sides of a coin that reverberate. And then as, as it progresses through time, this music that came from a lot of tangled roots of the blues and gospel, but also ballads and fiddle tunes and minstrel shows, it started sprouting new branches. And so this thing that was never one music became even more types of music, mm -hmm. uh, Western Swing here mm -hmm. from Fort Worth and others. So, so, Julie, why don't you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of how much has country music been shaped by people's search for redemption? Well, if you just look at John Fetch, that's one terrific example. Um, it, I mean, it's very much shaped by things of redemption. Um, you know, we like to say that one of the reasons um, country music has been so popular and has taken all these different paths is it's about really elemental things that all humans experience. It's about love, it's about loss, it's about failure, it's about redemption or the hope for redemption. And these are things anybody can relate to, no matter their class, their race, their gender. And I guess, I think, uh, John Cash appears for the first time in episode four, and he is in every episode thereafter until episode eight. We actually close with his death. So it's, uh, you know, he was obviously an enormously talented person, and his daughter is our Roseanne Cash, who is the guide to his life in our film. She gave us two wonderful interviews. And she, and she says to us, you know, redemption themes played out over and over and over again in his life and his music. He's the same guy who always had a gospel tune, always, in one of his concerts, but he would also sing saw a shot of a man in Reno. Just, just to watch him die. And that played out in his life as well. You know, he descended into terrible addictions in the 1960s. Um, we have vitamins and alcohol. And when he got himself straight enough uh, to make a comeback because he was missing concerts and you know promoters were suing him, um, he decided to go to a prison and make a live album to see if he could redeem his career. And there's this wonderful picture um, at that concert. He's standing, waiting to go on stage, and he later wrote, I knew this was it. This was my chance to make up for all the times I had failed and screwed up. And of course, the album that followed was Folsom Prison Live, which not only topped the country charts, but across all sorts of cultural and social, you know, it, it was Rolling Stones that, you know, was Johnny Cash was a hero of you know, the counterculture. So that's one example. But you do see that over and over again, that um, how can I redeem myself? Mm -hmm. Can I add one thing? Sure. Uh, so the, as Julie mentioned, the line from Folsom Prison Blues, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. One of the themes of country music or one thread that we that we follow is how much, uh, unlike many other forms of music, uh, country music looks back and tries to remember tradition and don't get above your raisin. In our eighth episode, it's all about that as, as well. Johnny Cash, like many great country stars, like Merle Haggard, idolized Jimmy Rogers as the father of country music. And he told Marty Stewart, who is uh, another person like Roseanne, who uh, is one of our commentators throughout all the eight episodes, and then we get to their own careers. Johnny Cash told Marty Stewart, uh, who was uh, a good friend and a member of his, uh, of his band at one point, he said, uh, you know that line in Folsom Prison Blues, uh, Folsom Prison Blues, I shot a man in Reno just to watch you die. And Marty said, yeah, I know. He goes, you know I got that from Jimmy Rogers. I'm going to shoot for it. Don't no, no, just watch it drop and fall. Right? You know that. Just, yeah, I know that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure you go back and you draw from, you know, draw from the roots and move forward. Mm -hmm. And I told you how great the book is, but here's one of the, for me, most surprising lines came from, of all people, Ringo Starr, who was born in Liverpool in 1940, and someone asked him, who's the most significant musical force in your life? And his answer was Gene Autry. 
So, Dayton, what did Gene Autry from Tioga, Texas, do to inspire and advance the music, not only in the United States, but around the world? Uh, well, Gene was born in Tioga, and uh, we're going to Oklahoma next, I need to, need to say. And there's a town in Oklahoma that named itself uh, for uh, Gene at uh, Autry, Oklahoma. Um, Gene also started as a slavish imitator of Jimmy Rogers, yodeling and actually singing Jimmy Rogers' songs in the Depression for a, a discount label. So you could, instead of buying the Jimmy Rogers one, you could, you could listen to Gene Autry imitating Jimmy Rogers and pay 25 cents instead of 60 cents. Um, and did pretty well by that. But uh, was singing in the radio station in Chicago and his record producer said, you know, you gotta stop this imitation stuff. You, you, you got talent. Do you know? Create your, do your own stuff, and he became a quote singing cowboy, um, and went out to Hollywood where they started making these singing cowboy movies, shorts, um, and it set off a craze across the nation. Every every studio had to have a singing cowboy. You know, uh, you know, the Tex Ritter, uh, you know, was, was part of that tradition. But Gene's the one that, that set it off. And he became so incredibly popular there uh, that he became a worldwide star as well. He went at the height of his popularity to London and you know played there to huge crowds. He went to Ireland and I think it was like 200,000 people showed up in Dublin uh, to, to see Gene Autry. Um, and because he, was a, because he was a Jimmy Rogers fan, he was now wearing a cowboy hat, and because he was so popular, a lot of country stars, even if they're from Alabama, started wearing cowboy hats. And because Gene Autry yodeled, because Jimmy Rogers said yodeled, everybody thought cowboys needed to yodel. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where that comes from. I mean, what, you know, why are, why, why are, you know, why is, is it assumed that country stars, male ones, and sometimes female too, will often wear cowboy hats and cowboy boots, if even if they're from Tennessee or the haulers of Kentucky. It's because of Gene Autry. Mm -hmm. And why did so many people think the cowboys yodeled? It was because of Gene Autry and Jimmy Rogers. Mm -hmm. But we, we found out one of the surprising things in, in, uh, in one of our episodes, that all four of the Beatles actually were ahead, you know, were fans of different parts of country music. Uh, but Ringo, uh, when they finally wanted him to sing a song on an album for the first time, the Beatles, he picked the Buck Owens song, Act Naturally. And it was on the flip, the, on the flip side of Yesterday. So on the flip side of Yesterday, is Ringo singing a Buck Owens song. That's how, that's how much country music I mean, the book talks about at the height of his fame, Gene Autry was receiving 20,000 fan letters a week. And a quote that isn't in the book, but I've got to tell this story. Somebody once went up to Gene Autry and said, Gene, do you think you're a good singer? He said, you know, I really don't, but apparently 25 million people disagree with me. <laughs> <laughs> And that's one of the many reasons why, by the time he died, he was one of the 400 richest men in, in the world. <laughs> All right, uh, Julie, uh, besides Gene Autry, another very famous Texan who made uh, his mark on country music, was Bob Wills, who gave country music its beat by implementing drums and a new sound by implementing electricity, the electric steel guitar, and used it to create something called Western swing music that actually got people dancing. And so to create this new music, he uh, combined fiddle tunes, blues, and even Mexican-American music. And so, Julie, was he really the first major country artist who truly fused together multiple genres of music? Um, I mean, I guess I might argue that Jimmy Rogers fused multiple. I mean, he was clearly influenced 
like blues. But when you look at Bob Wills, it's obvious he was hearing swing, which was the music of the day in the 1930s. And as you said, he introduced he just took new instruments. It wasn't so much horn-based, but he used um, guitars, uh, fiddles, and um, and as you say, gave it gave it its beat, gave it its voice. And it was very popular throughout the Southwest before he became nationally popular. And you might have more to say on that. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, at the same time that the big bands were, were playing in Harlem and Los Angeles. Bob Wills, uh, and originally with Milton Brown, they split, Milton died, and Bob carried on this uh, new type of, uh, of, of, of country music. Uh, he, was, he became immensely popular. Um, uh, he, he was an innovator, and but he, you know, and that's what happens throughout the history of country music. Great artists, that's what great art is, you know. Uh, there are very few great protean artists who just simply do what the people right before them do. They, they take from that and they build on it, and they may take something from over here and add it uh, to it, and that's the story of country music, as, at least as we understand it as we tell it, and he's, he's uh, you know, exhibit A of that. He grew up uh, uh, in a place where he had neighbors who were African-American sharecroppers, and he learned a little bit of blues from them. He was a champion fiddler from a family of champion fiddlers, moved up to the, uh, up to the panhandle. Um, Played, I just want to say for those of you who know this, this name, he and his dad would played at a couple of uh, all-night ranch parties for Charles Goodnight, um, the great old uh, trailblazer. He moved to New Mexico where he played with uh, Mexican-American bands and he picked up a little bit of uh, flavor there. And so his, and then he came back to Fort Worth and he and Milton Brown started experimenting with this, this, this new sound. His biggest song started as Spanish two-step was a fiddle tune. And then he changed it to be San Antonio Rose as just a fiddle tune. His publisher now was out in New York, the Irving Berlin Company. They said, that's such a popular tune. Let us, let us have our, our very special songwriters add words to it and maybe a little bit of a new arrangement. So I said, oh, OK. They sent it to him. And he hated the words, and he didn't like the arrangement. He said, when I play this to my crowds, they say, what happened? Were, this is an authentic Bob Wills. So he paid one of his horn players five bucks and gave him a jug of whiskey and said, you write some lyrics for this. And that became New San Antonio Rose, which he then made a, a big hit. And then Bing Crosby, this again shows how porous these boundaries are, Bing Crosby then released New San Antonio Rose and sold something like three million copies. And as Bob Wills said, I went from hamburgers to steaks on that one. <laughs> but he, he's a one, and again, so he would be, in our film, we have, have two people talking about him passionately, not historians, Merle Haggard and Ray Benson, who some of you may know from the, the Wheel, wheel uh, a a uh, Jewish kid from Philadelphia who, who's, uh, who's the keeper of the flame of, uh, of Western Swing and lives in, in Austin, Texas. Uh, and that, that again shows you just how, what, how American this music is, regardless of what you're talking about. Yeah, somebody, ought to, somebody ought to make a movie out of Bob Wells' life. He was a binge drinker, which resulted in, in his having five divorces in a space of six years. <laughs> And two of those marriages and two of those divorces were to the widow of Milton Brown. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right. Um, well, let's, uh, we've talked about uh, different kinds of music, but we all know the, the term bluegrass music. And probably most people here love bluegrass music. And it was pioneered by a guy named Bill Monroe. Uh, and he used the mandolin, which was his instrument, as well as banjo, fiddle, and guitar all playing at high speed, and in his band were Flatten Scruggs, who you remember played the Beverly Hillbillies themes and, and so forth. And so, so 
Dayton, if, if country music had a Mount Rushmore, would Bill Monroe be one of the four figures? Well, if uh, country music had a Mount Rushmore, it'd have to be a big mountain. Uh, <laughs> or at least if, if, uh, if, if you're asking me to, to, to carve it. But I think uh, even if it was just four, Bill Monroe would be. And he had two mentors. His mentor was his Uncle Penn, uh, who he wrote a famous bluegrass song about called Uncle Penn. Um, and his other one was uh, uh, a black fiddle player named Arnold Schultz, who inculcated him with the blues a little bit. And so again, you see all this mix and mingling. And then he was a great, and I tell you, he, his, his debut on the Grand Ole Opry was before he had started developing the more syncopated stuff uh, 10 years later with Flat and Scruggs called Bluegrass. But when he was just a string band player, he still had a lot of energy and high harmonies and things like that. His debut at the Opry, which is a very important moment, are they going to invite you back? He sang Jimmy Rogers' Mule Skinner Blues, but he reinterpreted it. You know, it didn't, it didn't sound like Jimmy Rogers' version, but it was Mule Skinner Blues. And some of the people in the audience, some of the purists said, oh, what a sacrilege. What is he doing to the song? The crowd loved it. They just adored it. He was invited back and became, ultimately became the father of bluegrass. When Elvis Presley and Rockabilly were, were starting, which was partly one of the parents of that was country music, when he was invited the first time to play at the Opry, one of his first hits was Blue Moon of Kentucky, to which he did this, a Blue Moon of Kentucky, which doesn't sound anything like, like Bill Monroe. And again, the people said, oh, what a sacrilege. And Bill Monroe at first didn't like it until he got the first royalty check. Then he thought it was uh, fine. But Bill Monroe, you know, when we introduce him in the second episode and the second chapter, and he, we take him all the way. Of the last three stories that we tell, the last one is about Johnny Cash's final days. Second to last is about Bill Monroe because it's told so beautifully by Marty Stewart and Ricky Skaggs, who considered him their mentor and his death prompted them to rethink their careers and want to make sure that they dedicated themselves to keeping the, the spirit of Bill Monroe and, uh, and his music alive. And so mm -hmm. they did not get above the race. That's right. Now, one of the, as, as country music grew, uh, there were so many uh, side results of World War II, but you say country, uh, World War II nationalized country music. So tell us what that process was about, how, how the war caused the spread of country music. Yeah, um, Bill Malone was the one historian who talks about this quite eloquently. Um, so when, when men, mostly from the South, um, uh, but also the upper Midwest, you know, started enlisting, being drafted into the war, they took their music with them. So they not only took it to where they were training, they took it overseas. Um, and people who were coming out of small towns to work in the defense industry, moving to the California coast or you know, coast town, uh, they took their music with them. So the music, the music spread everywhere, um, and they quickly introduced it to their fellow GIs. And, um, and they, I'm trying to remember the exact expression in Japan. So this is how popular country music was in Japan. It's rumored that Roosevelt. When, yeah, that when kamikaze um, uh, fighters were attacking the Americans, they would yell, to hell with Roosevelt, to hell with Babe Ruth, to hell with Roy Aga. In Europe, when they did, um, you're going to have to help me out here, in Europe when they looked at what was selling. Um, well, Armed Forces Radio. Armed Forces Radio. Did a poll. It, did a poll. it was country music. So it really did take, take it from being a regional music, spread it not only across the United States, but it was taken to Europe, it was taken to Asia, um, and that's when it became nationalized. Now, Dayton, another Mount Rushmore figure, even on a small mountain, uh, emerged right after World War II, and that was Hank Williams, the man who was known as 
the hillbilly Shakespeare. And one of the, my favorite lines in the book, somebody once asked Hank Williams, Hank, how do you write all those great songs? He said, I don't write them. I, I just hang on to the pen and God sends them through. <laughs> so, Dayton, give us your perspective on what it was that made Hank Williams such a landmark figure in country music. Well, you mentioned Saturday night and Sunday morning, which is a, a theme throughout, and uh, nobody that I can think of used that, those two impulses, which on the one hand seem contradictory, and on the other hand actually make all the sense of the world, uh, more than Hank Williams. I mean, uh, his own life um, was tortured uh, with alcoholism and then Drug addictions. He had he had some physical problems. He may have been spina bifida when he was born. That caused a lot of uh, pain. But as you mentioned, uh, he's another example. He quit school early and sang on street corners. Um, when he made a little bit of money, he spent it uh, usually on you know parties and uh, things like that. Uh, but he also. Um, wrote some great, I saw the light. You know, he was passed out in the back of his car after a, um, after a, a gig. His mother, his very firm mother, uh, but not firm enough perhaps, but, um, but she was driving the car and he was passed out in the back and they were coming back into Montgomery. And, and she says, Hank, wake up. You know, she'd seen the lights of the Montgomery Airport. She said, Hank, wake up, we're almost home. I saw the light. And he woke up, and by the time they arrived home, he'd written the lyrics to I Saw the Light. And Jimmy, little Jimmy Dickens, the first interview that we did, now he's now passed on, told us, told us the story that he was traveling with, with Hank and with uh, Minnie Pearl. And um, Hank said, you know, uh, tater, he called it Tater because his first hit was Take an Old Cold Tater and Wait. Uh, Hank said, Tater, let's write you a hit. And <coughs> had Minnie Pearl reach into the glove compartment to get out a piece of paper and he said, now write this down. And, and Hank would tell him a line, he'd write down, tell him another line, drive down. And he said, in 15 minutes, um, he wrote, Hey, good looking. And he said, now you. You, uh, you, you go record this. He says, Susan, get in the studio, Hank. I'm, I'm going to do it, believe me. Well, Hank would do this with lots of artists at, in the back of the Opry. He'd try, try out a song they'd written and see if they liked it and if they wanted to record it. And some of them, you know, many stars did record his song. If they really liked it, then Hank recorded it himself. And so about a week later, according to Jimmy Dickens, Hank came to him and said, you know that song, uh, you know that song that I wrote for Eagle Jack because I recorded today. Uh, and so it became a big hit for, for Hank Williams. But part of that is this, uh, what he also gets to is there is this uh, mystery in songwriting. And I'm a writer and I, and I, and I write songs too. Um, we tell a lot of the stories of the prompts that, of how stories, uh, how songs came to be written. But most of them also just sort of said, well, it's also, you know, this line came to me. Merle Haggard standing in the airport with Bonnie Owens' wife, they'd been on the road for 200 straight days, and they landed in the airport, and he looked at me and said, you know, today I started loving you again. And that stuck in his mind, and he wrote one of his greater songs, Today I Started Loving You Again. Loretta Lynn said it's the best. Tell the story of how big city Oh, yeah. It's not in the film, unfortunately, but it's in the book. It's in the book. Yeah. That's why you got to get the book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is, a, so we had this long discussion about different songs with him. And he was in Los Angeles after being on the road and on the bus and, uh, you know, getting back in the bus. And his bus driver said, I'm tired of this dirty old city. And that cut his ear and he goes, well, what would like to, what would like to be? He said, I don't know, somewhere in the middle of Montana. And I don't know if you know Merle's song, Big City, but it says, I'm tired of this big, dirty old city or 
and big city turn me loose, set me free somewhere in the middle of Montana. So he sat down and wrote that, wrote that, wrote that <laughs> song, which is one of my favorite songs. I spent a lot of time traveling in and out of Montana. And across the border, I put that song on. But um, he, uh, it made a lot of money, but he gave his bus driver the co-writing credit. Made made his bus driver about a couple hundred thousand dollars more. That's the book. Of comment about how the he called one time and says I don't know it's a circle of words you know that's around the topic. And Marty Stewart says in terms of what Hank Williams said you know I don't know God you know it just comes to me, God and God does it does you know you think about God the Creator who made the heavens and the earth. Three-minute country song isn't that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs> Another great line in the book is Vince Gill says, I don't know if I write the songs or the songs write me. Uh, Julie, let's talk about some of the great women performers. Uh, Maybelle Carter, Patsy Montana, Wanda Jackson, Kitty Wells, Brenda Lee, Loretta Lynn, Patsy Cline, Dolly Parton, Tammy Wynette, Barbara Mandrell, The Judge, Reba McIntyre, they're all in here. We think, of, or at least some people for a long time, thought of country music as good old boys in pickup trucks. So how did these women have the, the horsepower to kind of get beyond that stereotype? Yeah, and uh, I, think, I think if you watch the film, you'll understand it's right from the get-go. Women are country music. I mean, two-thirds of the Carter family are women, and truthfully, AP kind of stood in the background when they were performing. I mean, they guitar picking as influenced uh, guitarists in all genres, Wayne Allman you know, taught his wife to pick a guitar with Maybelle's style. And then Sarah's voice, as Marty Stewart says in our film, you know, Taylor Swift, anybody singing today, any woman singing today has to know about Sarah Tarver because that's where she comes from. So, um, in, you know, in those days, uh, in the 20s, 30s, and even 40s, women who performed, some of the names, tended to be with their families or their husbands. You know, they came into it as part of a group. Um, but once you hit the post-war um, women started coming in on their own. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't always easy. It took a, a force like Patsy Cline, and she is a force of personality. I mean, she's, she's unbelievable. Um, and there were a lot of barriers to overcome. But what struck us, and I think, <laughs> and I think you'll see it in the storytelling, was um, how much women helped each other. So when Loretta Lynn showed up, um, or uh, Connie Smith tells a great story, um, when she came to Nashville, uh, Loretta Lynn told her husband to go out to the front of the Aubrey and, and bring Connie back. And Loretta was pregnant with her twins at the time, and Connie said, Loretta said to her, now Patsy did this for me, and I'm gonna do it for you. I'm gonna tell you who to watch out for, if you can all guess what she's talking about, I'm going to tell you what to expect out of Nashville, how you navigate this town. You know, there, there were songs about, you know, Patsy would lend her clothes out to other women just to help get them started. And, and so, and we found that over and over again, that the, the women were helping each other out. Um, it wasn't always easy. Um, and Dolly tells, Dolly's story of liberation is actually written into her song, I Will Always Love You. She was, came the day after she graduated from high school, the first person in her family to graduate from high school. She got on a bus with a cardboard suitcase, went to Nashville, and um, she was on Porter Wagner's show. She was the girl singer. And she was very successful, very popular, but she was writing her own material. And she wanted, she had bigger dreams. She didn't want to be just Porter's girl's singer. And she kept telling Porter, you know, I'll stay for five years, and then I would say seven to seven. And he, didn't, he was in a sewer, he didn't want to let it go. And she finally sat down and said, I'm just going to do what I do best, and that's write a song. And she wrote the song, I Will Always Love You, saying to Porter, you know, it's an anthem to Porter because he had done a lot for her career. On the other hand, he was so controlling and always wanted to keep her in her place. Um, and she's saying, I'm never going to forget you, but I have dreams of my own. I want my own show. I have things I want to do. And it's, uh, it's, it's her way of liberating herself. She did it through a song. And he said to her, he, said, he was crying. He said, uh, 
that's a great song. That's the best thing you've ever written. He said, okay, you can go, but only if I can record that song. Only <laughs> 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 if I can produce that song. And, and uh, we know Dolly to and yes, that is the song that Whitney Houston took into the Never Never Land. Yeah. Uh, the book tells the story of, and the, the subtitle is, The Story of America One Song at a Time. But it uh, profiles Charlie Pride, the first great African-American country singer of the modern era, and then Johnny Rodriguez, the first uh, Latino country western <laughs> superstar of the modern era. Uh, but uh, Dayton, tell the story of Charlie Pride and Farron Young, because this to me is as good as the story that Julie just told about how the women helped each other out. Tell that story. Well, when Charlie Pride came to Nashville in 1965, uh, there had been a, an African-American star in the Opry before Bailey, the harmonica wizard, but uh, that would have been in the 20s and 30s. Um, Everyone recognized how great his voice was, because you know, if anyone's ever heard Charlie Pride's song, you know, you can't forget it because that's those are, those are that's a great God-given voice. Um, and so he they he recorded a number of songs. A number of labels were skittish about wanting to take him on because he's black. And um, finally, Chet Atkins took the songs and took them to his, the heads of the labels in New York, I think. And he played them the music before he showed them a picture of who was singing. And they decided that there was such an undeniable talent that they wanted to, you know, you know to, to put the records out. But when they sent it to the DJs on the country stations, they didn't make any mention of it and they didn't put in photographs. And so for a while, early on, the radio stations were playing these great, this great song of his, very popular, and everyone, including the DJs, assumed he was a, another white Southern singer. Um, as he first was getting started, um, they, they, he was told there are some people you need to, to meet and who, who, to get to know and to get by, and it was assumed that Farron Young was one of the people who was going to be the biggest problem. He was the most controversial guy in Nashville, had the most opinionated, and people, as Ralph Emery, the DJ from WSM says, you know, people respected Farron, people were afraid of Farron. Um, so Charlie said, well, let's get it over with, let's go beat him. And they tracked him down, and um, they went up to him and said, I'm Charlie Pride. And, and he, went like this and looked up at him and finally stood up and said, well, Charlie Pride, you sing a good country song. And I said, Farron, you do too. And they started trading songs back and forth. And according to Charlie, then what Farron said was, well, who'd have thought I'd be singing here with the jig and enjoying it? And they became great friends. And uh, when Charlie learned, uh, when Farron learned from a DJ at a DJ convention, that when their station had learned, that Charlie Pride was black, they were going to get rid of his records. And he said, well, you just go tell that son of a bitch that if they do that, they got to get rid of my records, too. They take Charlie off, they got to take me off. And, uh, and at the end of our story uh, about Charlie and, and that, um, Charlie Pride says, you know, he became my best friend, and he and I went into the music hall thing together. Well, one of, one of Ken Burns' favorite expressions as he looks at where the country is today and how divided we are, and he says, he quotes Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who said, these days we've got way too much pluribus and not enough unum. And, uh, and this book does a great job of talking about how country music uh, was a big factor in bringing some unum, particularly in the Jim Crow era. And a lot of it was... Uh, in Memphis and Nashville, Elvis's first big hit, That's All Right, uh, came from Big Boy Crudup, who is a black blues singer. Chuck, but this was this thing that blew my mind. Chuck Berry's song, Maybelline, was played off of Bob Wills' Ida Red. Can you imagine? So the king of Sun Records, a guy named Sam Phillips, you probably heard of, he's one who found Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and all these guys. And his quote is, 
I knocked the shit out of the color line. I got a white man singing Negro rhythms. So Dayton, how did this musical racial crossover impact America during the Jim Crow era? Well, I, I think, you know, I don't want to, uh, I'd be reluctant to overstate, you know, how much it, it, you know, redirected the course of American history. But as we, as we see in the story of country music, when you focus on, particularly when you focus on the art and the artists, um, they're always out ahead of the culture. In other words, you know, our cultures can, you know, if you quoting the thing about pluribus and unum, we have a tendency at different times, sometimes all the time, but uh, at different times at higher levels, of trying to focus on an us and a them, and and whatever whatever it is we think about us, it has to be defined by being not that. And what you learn in looking at country music and the artists of it, they're not interested in that. You know, for them, it's it's. It's all of us, and we, we, you know, there are no boundaries and there are no barriers. And so when D. Ford Bailey, the black uh, harmonica wizard in the 20s and the 30s, would have to, you know, if you're on the Grand Ole Opry, you weren't getting paid much, but you got the exposure so you could travel and do paying gigs for the rest of the week and then get back to Nashville in time for the next Opry. So he was traveling for a while with another great opera star named Uncle Dave Macon. Uncle Dave Macon's dad was a captain in the Confederacy. D. Ford Bailey's grandfather had been a slave who had escaped and fought for the Union. And they're traveling the segregated South of the 20s and early 30s together. Uh, and there'd be places where, you know, D. Ford would not be served a meal or could not spend the night and so Dave Macon and the Delmore brothers would drive on to some other place. And just as just as they would borrow musically from one another, they just don't, you know, uh, the music just obliterates the notion of it's, it's this or that. It's saying it's all of this and that is the best of America, I think. Uh, I'm with that's you. who we are. We're Julie, always Julie wants to add something to that. Uh, the music is that too. And the sooner we get over, it's us or it's them, and saying it's all of us. The music's better. Maybe the nation be better too. And I think that gets a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. Because of these themes of love and loss, you know, failure, redemption, we all experience that. And so, and just because. You know, I'm white and you're black. We don't experience those elements of human emotions differently. And I think that's why country music is so positioned to kind of just break down those barriers. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, you're going to find a country music song that gets into your heart and it's going to get to somebody else's heart. And those elemental human emotions are what country music is all about. Mm -hmm. We have time for a couple of questions. John Shackelford. I got involved in country music industry in 94. That's a good question. Um, we deal with history and not journalism. And so in all the films that we do like this that you know take big themes, we find a cutoff point that's generally about a, a generation away because we have to be able to, in both the book and, and most certainly in, in the film, make these really hard decisions about what stories do you tell, what songs do you highlight, because in looking back and say, oh yeah, that was an important moment, or that was an important artist, or that song really is an enduring song. And we don't know, you know, uh, that, that requires time to have that judgment. If we're doing it right now, I, I you know, uh, I, I couldn't tell you who right now might be candidates for the Mount Rushmore that uh, Townish keeps wanting me to carve. <laughs> uh, so, so it's a basically, 
we, we, we start with that, that we need about a, a, a generation thing. 96, we, we, you know, it's around 96, but by 96, Garth Brooks had exploded onto the scene, had brought country music to a whole new level of popularity nationally. Um, and you can feel, you know, uh, things are changing that way. You can sort of feel the here comes, here comes now, you know, through, through that. Uh, Bill Monroe dies, and so that's sort of the end of an era, but with the, with the promise that uh, Ricky Skaggs gave to him on his deathbed that he would carry on, make sure you can go peacefully because you've got Marty Stewart, Vince Gill, and I, we're going to keep this music alive. And so you feel this transition. And then finally, Johnny Cash, who had been given up as a has-been, dropped by his label unceremoniously and sort of seemingly washed up. A hip-hop producer by the name of Rick Rubin brings him back into a studio, not to write, do a hip-hop you know, album, but to do a bunch of songs that is just Cash, his guitar, his unforgettable voice, and songs that he wanted to sing. And for him to get back to just the basics of that, we deemed him uh, in certain ways, both commercially and critically. Um, and so that, that's when that, and once we've gotten through that, because Cash had been such a huge figure, we, we slip a little bit over into 2003 to tell the, the you know, a very moving story told by his daughter, Roseanne, about his death. He had listened to, uh, growing up in Dias, Arkansas, in the Depression, on the battery-powered radio, they could hear the Carter family singing on the border blaster station out of Del Rio, Texas, or just across the border from Del Rio. And so that was one of the first things that he ever heard. He ended up marrying one of the people whose voice he heard, Jim, you know, Jim Carter. As he was dying, Roseanne would read the Bible to him, but also would sing in songs. And the one he liked the best was a Carter family song called The Winding Stream. Uh, and so that's what she was singing to him when he died. And so she said, the Carter family brought him in to the country music, and the Carter family's on the album. Isn't that awesome? Place in the film. Steve. I, I think you may have just answered my question with the, the show of emotion you had. Uh, but do you, to and or Ken, are you or do you need to be country music fans in order to take this project on? It's, it's like, or were you a Civil War buff? And, and that's what prompted the Civil War they were baseball and that. But do you guys have a, a, an ongoing history of, uh, of love for country music? Or is it? That's a great question. So we, we have three
got time for one more question. Fine. Without apologies to David Allen Coe, your opinion is what's the perfect country like this? Oh, man. You know, sometimes I think it's just the song, and sometimes I think it's the experience you were having when you heard that song. So I'm going to give you two. That's appropriate for songs from Texas. So if I had to name my all-time favorite, which is a little different than the question you asked, I would say, well, I think today I started loving you again. However, when we were beginning production on the Dust Bowl many, many years ago, I was making my first research trip, um, and I was flying into Amarillo. And it was a late night flight, it was about 10 o'clock, as uh, we were landing. And once we landed, the flight crew put on Amarillo by morning. And I was just bored. I mean, I just, I thought I, you know, I don't know how I missed the song before that point, but it just, I, I associated with the beginning of making that film, and meeting all the wonderful people I had been interviewed in their evenings and nights. I mean, it just because it's, it's a rodeo song, and yet I associate it with my work on the Dust Bowl and my love of that topic in that film. So, I, you know, I'll give you two answers, I guess. Mm -hmm. I'll give you 20. No, uh, <laughs> I get two then, if she did. Um, and it varies from day to day, I, I, I suppose. Uh, Merle Haggard's Hungry Eyes, Mama's Hungry Eyes, is to me uh, one of the great songs ever. Um, I don't know, you, you, you all probably know it, but it's a, about growing up and his mom in a poor family, dad working hard, trying to feed his mom, mama's hungry eyes, who wants something better for them, but, you know, but they, and they have to be taught because they don't understand it. <coughs> because um, they're Okies. Another class of people cut to somewhere down below. One more reason for my mom's hungry eyes. It's just one of the great songs. Uh, I had a mom with hungry eyes. Uh, uh, Sunday Morning Coming Down by Chris Christopherson, another Texan. It's Saturday night and Sunday morning, except that it's Sunday morning, and the music Sunday morning is supposed to be a place where you get uplifted and everything. But he wakes up Sunday morning with my uh, with, with no way to hold my head that didn't hurt, both figuratively and literally, uh, and goes out on the sidewalk and he's experiencing all these Sunday morning scenes of father pushing his girl on swing, goes by the church, and hear the choir sing, but he can't participate in it. I mean, it's, it's, so it's, it's, uh, it's not the uplifting part of Sunday morning. He says, it took me back to something that I lost somewhere, somehow, along the way. So he's, he's lost that. It's, it's, it's total despair. Uh, but with the memory of the hope of redemption. And uh, in their interview with uh, Chris Christopherson uh, was asking him, where did this come from? You know? And he said he was just expressing the life he was living there, and he started quoting the opening lines of it. Uh, and then he just sort of stopped after he got through the first uh, verse and just had this moment where I thought, he's having a heart attack. I mean, was, he, was just, he was just froze, you know? And I didn't know if I should say something, you know, but then he was just, he was just, he was just taken back to that moment, I think. Um, and then said, it's a, a blessing. And he was, you know, he was just sort I think, remembering both where he was at the time that he wrote it and everything. He also, um, uh, he also quoted William Blake to us, you know, a long, lengthy, complicated William Blake thing that I could, you know, I could spend the rest of my lifetime to memorize. But it was something that he had learned when he was a, at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, studying William Blake. But I was asking some questions about his decision to leave as a Rhodes Scholar and about to have an appointment to West Point to be an instructor. He was a captain in the uh, Army Rangers. Um, and so he quoted the William Blake, and he 
said, what he's telling you is that if you don't do the thing you, you really wanted to do and should have done, then you've wasted your life. So he became a songwriter. <laughs> we asked a different, we asked that question to most of the people we interviewed. Uh -huh. um, although we, we realized we couldn't just say, well, what's the epitome of a country song? Long-windedness is my specialty. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, you and I are on a committee for NASA, and on a, on a space probe that we're going to send, send deep and say we're going to put the Constitution, the rules of baseball, and what should we put on as the epitome of a country song to represent this art form? So we did it in a much more long-winded way. So people knew what was coming, but they could sit back and think about it a little bit as he was talking. And, um, George Jones is he stopped loving her today. I got the most votes. Um, he had just died when we were doing the interview, so I think that influenced a little bit. A lot of Hank Williams songs, um, and then then all over the map. But it was it was fascinating to see people think about what that meant. And um, oh, and Willie, <laughs> we asked Willie the question. Willie sat back and he said. Can the songwriter go into space with it? <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're, we're going to respect your schedules. We have, you know, hopefully you all have your books. We have additional copies. Christmas isn't far away. This is the best book with the pictures and Dayton's brilliant prose that you'll want to give to every country fan on your Christmas list. So Dayton will be out there signing. Uh, thank you so much. I truly believe that Ken Burns' country music documentary film will draw the biggest audience he's ever had compared to his prior films, including the Civil War. And those who read Dayton Duncan's book will enjoy it every bit as much as the film. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all of my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late friend Bobby Reagan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.